Is this your favorite time of year? This is my favorite season of the year. And you know, for me, actually, the season, this Christmas season usually begins on my birthday, which is October 30th. It's the day before Halloween. And this year it began with my birthday present. Birthday present for my wonderful wife. She's up in the children's ministry. So if you have kids up there, they're with my wife. They're in good hands. But I received my Christmas or my birthday present from my wife when we got back from my niece's wedding out in California in the middle of September, which means that this season, this Christmas season for me actually began during that trip in the middle of September because I got to be with my whole family, got to be with my two sons. They're grownups. They live elsewhere. Got to be with, with their girls. One son's married. His, his wife's name is Heather, and my other son has a long-term girlfriend, Her name is Rosa, and we got to see them in the beautiful wine country in central California. Okay, so this is my favorite season, and this year it began mid-September on my California trip, and then when I got home to Florida, I got to to welcome my birthday gift that my wife gave me this year, and my birthday gift this year is the newest member of my family, and for those of you who haven't met him yet, I want you all to meet Loki. That is my birthday gift, which makes it part of the great time of year. Okay, where was I? Okay, seriously love the Christmas season, right? Okay, so I've always loved the Christmas season, seriously. Even before I was a Christian, I loved the Christmas season. I love that the weather gets cooler, the Florida version of cooler, because this, right? I mean, this is the Florida version of cooler. I actually got to wear my jacket the other day. Yes, singular, one jacket. Does anyone else own a jacket? I own one, one jacket. People find that hard to believe. Some people own more than one. I own one. It's usually by this time of year in the very back of the closet, but I found it. I wore it. It was really nice. I was walking the dog. I love it. I, I love the fact that the days are shorter, and I love the fact that the people are nicer. All right. That one's a little more aspirational, you know, but a guy can dream, right? So, okay, people are kind of sort of nicer. I love the Christmas music. And nowadays, you can just demand Christmas music. And if you demand it, you get it. You can listen to Spotify or Pandora or Apple Music or whatever Android does. And you can listen to Christmas Channel and you can listen to your Christmas favorites all the time. But with that said, for me and for Beth and for people who work in full-time ministry, Christmas time is the busiest time of the year. It's like tax season if you're an accountant. I mean, it's that kind of busy. So for us, it's not a vacation. I know a lot of the students got out of school Friday, and now they're looking at two weeks of vacation, and they're all excited. Sorry, parents, but, you know, this is the way it goes. Everybody has to live through it. But it's not a vacation for us. It means we're busy. It, It means decorating the church. And it means planning parties and ministry parties and doing end-of-the-year fundraising. And doing end-of-the-year fundraising. Okay, just made sure you heard that. Okay, we film videos, we prepare special sermons, and then, of course, we have to plan for the coming year. But it's not just a stressful time for full-time ministry people. It's a busy time of year for everybody. Everybody shares in the busyness of the Christmas season. We we decorate our houses during the Christmas season. 
We put up our trees and we decorate our trees. We go shopping. Have you been to the malls? Have you been out on the roads? It's, it's bedlam out there. We go to parties, we cook special food, we bake, we go to family gatherings, some people travel, some people have out-of-town guests come in, we entertain out-of-town guests. Just everybody is on the move. So, so that means for many people, Christmas can be a difficult time of year. Also, for many people, Christmas time can bring up some painful memories. Memories of unresolved childhood trauma, memories of, of lost loved ones. And at Christmas time, Feelings of loneliness can also be exacerbated. Feelings of abandonment, feelings of jealousy, feelings of deprivation. It could even bring up conflicting beliefs about how to celebrate the Christmas holiday altogether. Some people like to go crazy and have huge parties and just let it loose. Some people like to celebrate, but they do so in quiet and more pious ways, without the modern Christmas trappings and the modern Christmas traditions. Other people feel like if they make Christmas special, somehow they're minimizing how special it is to follow Jesus all year long. And other people still don't believe that Christmas should be celebrated at all. Because it's not a biblical holiday. You knew that, right? It's not in the Bible to celebrate Christmas. Did you realize this, that the Puritans, the people who first settled the new world here in America, when they came in 1630, the Puritans actually outlawed Christmas. The Puritans outlawed Christmas. If you celebrated Christmas back in 1630 in America, you could be fined. They were not the people you wanted to invite over to your Christmas party. They were kind of a bummer. They felt that Christmas celebration is a superstitious tradition that dishonors God. Isn't that horrible? All that to say, the Christmas season, while it really is the most wonderful time of the year, has in many ways become very complicated. And as a result, the message of Christmas has also become complicated. Well, tonight, I can't uncomplicate the Christmas season. So I want to try and uncomplicate Christmas. So let's pray, and then we can get on with it. Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us this morning or this evening. Thank you for an opportunity that we have to come together as your people, to join together as your community, and to celebrate the birth of our Savior. So God, as we take a look at the Bible tonight and as we speak of the things that you've given us to celebrate, help us to uncomplicate this Christmas. Help us to understand what it's truly, truly all about. We love you, God, and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. So in the world that, as it is today, and the world's kind of a mess. Everybody realizes that. Things are going on. The world's always been a mess, but we're, we're kind of really aware of it now. We have access to so much information, and we're always getting bad news streamed into our house on the computer or the television or on our phones or whatever it is. It is important for everybody to understand the simple message of Christmas. And here's where that simple message begins, and it comes to us from Luke's gospel. And if you've been to a Christmas service before, you've probably heard this gospel read. It's Luke chapter 2, Matthew, Mark, Luke, third book in the New Testament. It goes like this, Luke 2 verse 8. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. By the way, 
Do you ever notice in the Bible whenever an angel appears, the people are terrified? Isn't that weird? Because the image we get of angels in our culture, like you think they're cute little cherubs, they're little babies in diapers with chubby little wings, and they're smiling, or, or they're Victoria's Secret models and they're on a runway, which is nothing like an angel should be. But angels in the Bible are terrifying. They're scary. And so in verse 10, you see what the angels have to say to everybody who encounters an angel. Don't be afraid because they're terrifying. They're scary. Don't be afraid, though. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Some of your translations or versions you've heard before, he is Christ the Lord. Christ just means Messiah. So he is Messiah, the Lord. Verse 12, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, verse 14, glory to God in the highest heaven. And on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. All right, so now I'm put a couple verses back up and we'll focus on these. Verse 10 and 11. So to begin, notice the angel said, don't be afraid, I bring you good news. I bring you good news. Now, the phrase good news is where we get the word gospel. So we talk about the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those all bring us the good news. That word comes from the Greek word euangelion, which really translates not exactly to good news, but more to good story. So when you were presenting in euangelion, you were presenting a good story. Here's, some good, here's a good story you need to hear. Here's a good story. So the angels were in effect saying that they were about to drop something good that will bring great joy. So then you have to ask yourself the question, all right, I bring you good news of great joy. Great joy for whom? Great joy for all the people. And before we go on, I want you to take note of this because this is really important. The great joy would not just be for the shepherds who were getting the message or for the Jewish people among whom they lived and in the surrounding area who were the, 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 the local people. It wasn't even for the Romans, for the Roman occupiers. The great joy would be for all of the people. How many of the people? All of the people. Today, in the town of of David, a Savior has been born to you. So I need you to know something. If you've seen, if you've heard, if you've experienced anything coming from someone claiming to be a follower of Jesus that doesn't strike you as good news, that means that somebody has miscommunicated the message of Jesus to you. A pastor friend of mine likes to point out that when someone says to you, I've got good news, the last thing that crosses your mind is, all right, what is this going to cost me? Like, you don't think that when you hear that, when someone says, I've got good news. When someone says, I have good news, the only proper response is, that is awesome. Lay it on me. Because it means that something in your life is about to improve. Something's about to get better. And the message in the story of Christmas is 100% good news. And if you don't agree, it's likely that the message has gotten so complicated by all the things that have tragically just been layered on top of that message for so many years that it no longer seems good. 
Now, the good news that Jesus came to deliver is not, you'd better get your act together and quit sinning if you ever want God to love you. That's not the good news. In fact, that's just the same old command that every other religious system in the world delivers. Every other religious system in the world says, stop doing what you're doing or there's going to be a penalty. Or if you want God to love you, you'd better straighten up and fly right first. You don't need me to tell you, that's not good news. So for the next few minutes, I want to explain to you why the angels said they were bringing good news. And here's how you can know. If you've ever attended a church before, you're likely familiar with John, with the apostle John. And if you haven't attended church before, or you're not familiar with the Apostle John, don't worry about it. I'm about to tell you. Now, John, whose name was Yohanan in Hebrew, he was a follower of Jesus. He was also Jesus' closest friend. He was Jesus' best buddy. In fact, John was so close to Jesus that when Jesus knew he was about to die, Jesus asked John to take care of his mom. You know what Jesus' mom name was, don't you? Miriam. That was her name, Miriam. You might know her by another name. You might know her as Mary. Yeah, I figured you all knew that one. Now, you'd have to be pretty close to a person to ask that person to take care of your mom after you're gone, wouldn't you? Well, John was that close to Jesus. John had spent three years with Jesus. He saw Jesus do miracles. He saw Jesus die on the cross. But then he saw Jesus' empty tomb three days later. And then he saw resurrected Jesus. And then he had dinner with that resurrected Jesus after he rose from the dead. Now, unlike many people in the Bible, John lived to be quite an old man. And that was before ibuprofen. Like, John, that, that was quite a feat for John to live as old as he lived. And toward the end of his life, he wrote down the things that he heard Jesus say and the things that he saw Jesus do. Now, in as much as John was with Jesus from the very beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, the things that John wrote down weren't just stories. He didn't make this stuff up. He wrote down things that he actually experienced. He wrote down things that he'd actually seen. And the people of John's day could not get enough of these stories. They were very eager to receive them. And as such... John's writings were copied over and over again. And remember, they didn't have copy machines back then. They were hand-copied using ink and a quill and parchment very carefully, and then they were distributed all throughout the known world. In the writing that we know of as the Gospel of John, John told a story about Jesus' conversation with a respected religious leader. He was a Pharisee, and his name was Nicodemus. And in the middle of this story, as John was explaining how Jesus revealed to Nicodemus who he was, who Jesus was, John uses the story to lay out for anyone else who would ever read the Gospel of John who Jesus was as well. That's why when people first become followers of Jesus, we, we tell them, go read the book of John. The book of John kind of gives you the whole story from the very beginning. What John wrote has become one of the best-known verses in the entire book that we know of as the New Testament. And I said the word book in a weird way. I kind of emphasized it because the New Testament, though we think of it as a book, it's not 
technically a book. It's actually more a library. It's a library that contains a whole bunch of different kinds, 27 different kinds of writing. There are letters in there. There are there's some wisdom. Now, here's some good things to do. There are apocalyptic stories, uh, sort of the book of the Revelations, an apocalyptic story, all sorts of different kinds of stories, all bound together and called the Bible. And the thing that John wrote in his gospel brilliantly encapsulates the essence of the good news that was proclaimed by the angels the night Jesus was born. Now, if you determine to never become a follower of Jesus, I still want you to know something. It's important for you to know that what I'm about to tell you is what you're choosing to not be a part of. What I'm about to tell you is what you're choosing to not embrace, which if you're considering what I'm about to tell you with an open mind and an open heart, and if it's true, it is exceptionally good news. So here's what John wrote. For God so loved the world. God loved the world so much that God did what people who are in love do. God so loved the world that he what? That he gave. God gave. Now, this is interesting. You need to know this. In the mind of the Roman and the Greek thinking person of the day, that in and of itself, if I say nothing more, that was extraordinary. Because up until that moment, nobody believed that gods loved human beings. Indeed, and you can go ahead and check me on this, go review your old notes from Greek and Roman mythology. You either took it in middle school, high school, or college. But if you look at those, you can see that the gods, they didn't love anybody. They played with the people. The gods played. They toyed with the people, and the people paid for it. Gods had their own realm. They lived up on Mount Olympus. They just did their own thing. They toyed with the people. They destroyed whoever they wanted to destroy. They didn't care about it. They laughed. They thought it was funny. The people knew it. In fact, if something horrible would happen to a person, you know how they responded? They usually shrugged their shoulders and go, it was the gods. It was the will of the gods. If the crops failed, well, it was the will of the gods. If people got sick and died, it was the gods. The answer for every tragedy was, well, it was the gods. And every culture had its own different gods. And if one culture conquered another culture, they just believed that their gods must be superior, must be more powerful than the other people's gods. Well, in John's day, Jupiter was a superior god because Rome was the reigning culture. And to the people living in Rome at that time, Rome's power was evident everywhere they looked. You couldn't look any place and not see the power of Rome, Roman legions, Roman weapons, Roman buildings. But in recounting his encounters with Jesus, John said that because God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son. Now, John would go on and tell us how to become children of God. But first, he had to explain this one-of-a-kind understanding of the God that he'd personally witnessed. That God was different. That God was unique. And Jesus' relationship with that God was the likes of which they had never seen before. The God of which John spoke gave to the people in the world whom he loved the son who was most valuable to him. Now, if we stopped right there, that alone would be good news. That alone would be fantastic news. Think about it. 
it would be absolutely remarkable that the creator of the universe would give us, his creation, the beauty of the oceans, the beauty of the beaches that we get to enjoy here in Florida, but also the grandeur of the Rocky Mountains or the colors of the flowers of the field or the the diversity of the animal kingdom or the majesty of the forests. It would have been more than enough. It would have been good news enough that out of his love for us, he gave us this beautiful planet on which to live. But John told us that this God not only gave us this beautiful planet, but out of his love for us, he also gave us his most beloved possession. He also gave us his one and only son. But the story doesn't end there. Because we just learned this is really good news. God gives us all this great stuff, including his one and only son. But then John invites us into this gift. He says, that whoever. Now, what does whoever mean? Whoever means whoever. There's no limiting factor there. It means whoever the seemingly innocent child, the convicted felon, the scrupulous rule follower, the senior citizen who's been causing trouble for 50 years, everybody, whoever, any Jew, any Gentile, black person, white person, Latino, Anglo, Asian, European, indigenous, newcomer, anyone, whoever it is who believes in him. Now, This is the part of our message where I get a little theological, a little deep, but only for a second. The Greek word used here that we translate as believes is a common Greek word. It is the common Greek word pistuo. Now, generally, the Greeks would add to the word pistuo a preposition en, en, which is just like when we add the word in. So we would say believe in if anybody believes in him. But believe in wasn't really what John was trying to convey. Believing in Jesus wasn't the point. The point was much more involved. So John wrote something that many people believe had never before been written in the same context in Greek. John used a different preposition. He didn't use N. He used the preposition ace. It's spelled E-I-S in English. And he put it on the end of the word pistuo, so it was pistuous. And it created a brand new idea. It was the idea of believing towards something or believing into. It talked about leaning into something because you believe in it so firmly or or committing to something because you believe in it so firmly. The, The Greeks didn't have a word for trust. We've heard it as if you trust in him. That's an English word. They didn't have that kind of word. So John essentially created the word to capture the precise idea of what Jesus came to do and what Jesus asked the world to do in response to the things that God had done. And by doing that, John gave us the instruction that Jesus had come to convey, making John's words refer to whoever trusts in, whoever leans into, whoever moves into, whoever puts all of his or her weight on Jesus. So... John was telling us that if we place all of our weight or all of our trust on what Jesus has done on our behalf. Let me give you a little bit of an example here. I can believe in this chair. 
I can believe that this chair exists without really doing anything but looking at it, right? You can look at it and go, oh, yeah, it exists. And I can spend the rest of my life talking about this chair, studying about this chair, researching about this chair, buying books about this chair. I can do that for the rest of my life without making a difference to anybody for anything. It's not until I do something. It's not until I put all my weight on this chair. It's not until I put my 200 pounds of body weight on this chair that you can know that I believe that this chair is strong enough to hold me up. I should have checked the chair before we started, but I didn't. But it's holding me up, okay? I believe this chair can do it. Once I stand on the chair, it becomes clear that I truly believe it's capable of holding me up. And similarly, if I decide to place all of my weight, all of my trust on what Jesus did when he died on the cross for my sin, only then am I moving in the direction of the idea that John was speaking of. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him, pistuase, trusts in him, shall, okay, so whoever believes in, whoever trusts in him, shall have something. Because God loved, he gave. And if we believe, then we receive the thing that God came to give us. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. All right, so what does it mean? What does shall not perish, but have eternal life mean? It means that shall not perish, you won't come to an end. It means that you won't stop being, you won't cease to be. And if we put it all together, John was saying, if you place your trust... If you place your faith in Jesus, you will never cease to be. You will continue on. And then for added clarity, John added the phrase eternal life. And and this little phrase makes the context even cooler. In the Roman culture at the time, the people were obsessed with living forever. Nobody in the Roman culture thought they would ever die. They lived as if they're never going to die. Doesn't that sound familiar to something? The Roman emperors went so far as to call themselves divine. They called themselves gods. They just declared that they're gods. Julius Caesar declared he was a god. Claudius declared he was a god. Nero tried to declare he was a god. They believed that if they just declared themselves as gods, it would bestow upon them eternal life. Kind of like Michael Scott declaring bankruptcy, if you remember that. And then John came along, and in his twilight years... He told the people, that's that's not how that works. Instead, he wanted them to know that whoever placed their trust in Jesus, their life as they know it would not end, but they would receive something. And then he used the same phrase that the Roman emperors had used. In other words, he was trying to reach that Roman crowd, so he wanted to talk in the same language that they understood. He said eternal life, which was a phrase that Jesus defined. And here's what Jesus said about eternal life. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never die. God loved, God gave, we believe, and then we have something that we receive for our belief. The good news is God gave us the gift of eternal life. And at the end of Jesus' life, he prayed a long prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, which John wrote down. 
And in that prayer, Jesus defined exactly what he meant by eternal life. So look at this, John 17, 2. Jesus is Jesus' words. For you granted me, Jesus, authority over all people that I, Jesus, might have eternal life to those, might give eternal life to those you have given him. Then he goes on. Now this is eternal life. So here's what eternal life is. It's not what happens to you after you die only. It's what happens to you now, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. God loved, God gave, we believe, and we receive eternal life, that we may know you, the only true God. So what is eternal life? Eternal life is a relationship with God forever. Jesus said that he came to give mankind the knowledge of and a relationship with God through himself, God in the flesh. Now, at the beginning of John's gospel, he gave us another picture of just how relational this whole thing is. And here's how he put it. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Believe, receive, become. God loved, God gave, we believe, we receive. All right, so let's wrap this up. That which John wrote is indeed good news. So if you'll admit the bad news, because you got to have bad news before you get good news, the bad news that you'll admit is none of us, none of us on our own are perfect. And if you're a married guy, you have a leg up on some of the other people because if you, don't, if you think you're perfect, just ask your wife if you're perfect. It's really quite simple. None of us are perfect. None of us came into this world perfect. None of us came into this world perfectly capable of following God, perfectly capable of doing God's will in everything we do. We know that. Well, if you'll admit that none of us are capable of loving the way that Jesus commanded us to love, if you'll admit that we came into this world disconnected from, out of a relationship with God, our creator, but if you now understand that Jesus was born on the day that we call Christmas to bring us good news, that serves as an antidote to bad news, That because God loved and God gave, if we'll believe and if we'll receive, we'll become children of God, then you're there. People in an intimate and eternal relationship with God, the maker of heaven and earth. Well, John finished his explanation, just in case somebody didn't get the simplicity of God loved, God gave, we believe, we receive. He ended it by saying, we become. Then John said one more thing to make it crystal clear. And it's a verse that comes right after the famous verse, John 3, 16. It's John 3, 17. No one ever reads this one, but here's this one. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. I'm going to say that again because it's really important. Some people get the wrong picture about God. But this is Jesus' word right here. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. But rather to save the world through him. So from all the things I've talked about tonight, this much should be clear. If you have ever felt condemned by Christians or condemned by the church, they're the ones who sent you the wrong message. Jesus didn't send you the wrong message. John, who knew Jesus, 
who ate with Jesus, who watched Jesus live, who watched Jesus die, who saw Jesus after he rose from the dead and had dinner with Jesus after he had died. John, who had the opportunity for three years to ask Jesus every possible question. John, who wrote down this gospel account of how everything came together. That John told us that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him, the world might be saved. The world might be rescued from our estrangement, our disconnection with God, to an eternal connection, an eternal relationship with him. That is the message of Christmas. That is why God came into the world on that morning. God loved, so he did what people in love do. He gave. And when we trust in, when we believe, when we receive the very thing he's given us, a relation with God the Father, through Jesus Christ, God the Son, we receive eternal life. John told us that when a man or a woman or a child places their trust in Jesus, they receive a connection. They receive a good life. They receive eternal life through him. And that eternal life is purely relational. They become children of God. And that is why the angels were able to say, I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, the town of Bethlehem, the town where tonight they're not celebrating Christmas because of war. A Savior has been born to you. He is the Christ, the Messiah, the Lord. So the question is, have you ever made that exchange? Have you ever decided to quit trusting in you? Have you ever decided to quit trusting in your own made-up beliefs? To quit trusting in your own prayers or your own goodness or your own good intentions or your own generosity or even your own inner intellect or, or, or your own idea of what this whole life on earth means or how everything works. You meet people who are just, they're so smart. Oh, I know how it all works. I don't need this stuff. Instead of trusting in all that, have you decided to put your trust, all of your trust in Jesus? Because as long as you're trusting in you, here's what I know. As long as you're trusting in you to get into God's good graces, you never know if you did it. You'll never know where you stand with God. But Jesus said, I've got some great news. Here's how you can know for sure. I want to give you a relationship with the Father. And all you have to do is receive it. And how do you receive it? You receive it by placing your faith, your weight, your trust in what Jesus did on your behalf when he died on that cross for your sin. As John just told us, it's not that complicated. In a minute, if you've never done that before, I'm going to give you a chance to do it. I'm going to lead you in a prayer. And in this prayer, we're going to declare to God, God, I want eternal life so that I'm no longer trusting in myself. I'm placing all my trust and my faith in your son. I want to know you, and I want to know your son. I want to become that unique child of God that John talked about. But before we do that, I want you to know this. If you are not yet a Jesus follower, if, if you're somehow thinking about it, but you're not there right now, I totally understand that. I didn't become a follower of Jesus until I was 30 years old. But here's what I want you to know. Then we'll close. Nobody is here to talk you into anything. 
okay? I don't have to close the deal. I don't get a bonus. I don't get a commission. I don't make anything extra because nobody can make you believe. If you don't believe, then you don't believe. If you're not convicted, if you're not convinced, there's no point in pretending that you believe in something that you don't believe in. We're a community here at Hammock Street Church where you're free to not believe all you want. But here's something I want you to know. If sometime in the future, next week, next month, next year, five years from now, if something kind of dawns on you, if sometime in the future you find yourself feeling like just out of the blue, whoa, there's got to be more meaning to this. I don't know everything. If you start searching for something or being drawn to something or you ever find yourself beginning to doubt this disbelief that you have in God or at least question your unbelief, if you ever begin to reconsider that, maybe, just maybe, maybe there's something to all this. There is, and it's great news. You want to hear it? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That whoever believes in him, whenever that happens, God will give you, even if it's your last breath on this earth, even if it's at a moment of desperation when you're almost too embarrassed to ask, even if it's after you've done things that you are so ashamed of, even in that moment, God loves you and he sent his son for you. There are no restrictions, there are no qualifications, and there's no time. Whoever places their trust in him, no matter when you do it, you will receive the gift of a relationship with God. You will become a child of God, and you will have and experience eternal life. What could be better news than that? God loves you, and he gave you something, and if you believe it, and you will receive him, you will have eternal life. Today, you would like to cross that line of faith. Won't you bow your heads and pray with me? You can pray silently. You can follow along with me. You can change the words. You make them yours. But if you'll do that for the rest of your life, you can mark Christmas Eve 2023 as the day you'll never again wonder where you stand with your Heavenly Father. Let me pray for you pray together if you like. Heavenly Father, I believe that Jesus is your son. I believe when he died on the cross, he died for me. He died for my sin. And now I'm placing all my trust in his death on the cross as the full and final payment for all of those sins, even the ones I don't yet even recognize. I'm not trusting in my good intentions. I'm not trusting in my baptism. I'm not trusting in the promises I've made trusting in that which Jesus did when he died for my sin on that cross. I receive the promise of eternal life. God, bring me into your family to become one of your children. I want to know you. I pray this in Jesus' name.